Baptist Church. Go ahead and open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, it's page 987. 1 Thessalonians 5. First Thessalonians 5, follow along as I read verse 16. First Thessalonians 5:16, this is the word of God. Rejoice always. I gotta give us ears to hear his word. To begin with today, I want to share with you a quote. I know I've shared this quote with you before, but I think it illustrates well what I'm trying to say in this series. Around 400 years ago, a philosopher named Blaise Pascal said this, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Now, what do you think of that quote? Do you think it's true? In your own life, in your own experience, do you find that your every action is determined by what you think will make yourself happy, what will bring you joy? What do you think? I do think that for most of us, there's something about that quote that powerfully rings true. It really does seem as if everybody does what they do because they think it will make them happy. The reason why some people get married and why others get a divorce is because they think it'll bring them joy. The reason why some become alcoholics and others teetotalers is, again, because they think it'll make them joyful. The reason why some become devout Muslims and others devout atheists is, again, because they think it'll make them joyful. This quest for joy really does seem to be the overriding principle guiding our lives. Last week, we began this little mini-series on how to rejoice always. But please make no mistake, this is a deadly serious matter. I almost entitled today's sermon, Joy is Not a Laughing Matter. This is hugely serious. Therefore, it is something that we as Christians want to understand very well. You think about it, but so many of our problems go back to the quest for joy gone awry. The quest for joy gone awry is really what drives most addictions. The quest for joy gone awry is what almost always leads to these foolish, life-destroying choices. But at the same time, the quest for joy can powerfully transform your life for good and make you incredibly useful and beneficial in society. Joy is definitely not this trite, laughing matter, and this is something that we as Bible-believing Christians, we ought to know what God's Word says on this topic. Just to set this morning's sermon in context, last week we made four basic points on rejoicing always. First, we talked about the way in which the Bible talks about joy constantly, probably more than you realize. The Bible is continually calling us to joy, to delight, to gladness in the Lord. There are actually thousands of verses pertaining to this topic. And like we said last week, joy is actually one of the main themes of the entire Bible. Another point we made last week is the way in which joy is really not, at the end of the day, a feeling that you feel, but it's more a mindset. It's this mindset of gratitude and thankfulness which gives rise to a cheerful demeanor and then pleasant feelings. It's first and foremost a way to think, but so oftentimes we run into trouble because we get the cart before the horse. We put the feelings before the thinking and we find ourselves tossed to and fro. Again, we talked last week about the way in which joy is actually an expression of love for neighbor, 
Again, a lot of people don't think this way, but you ought to. To be continually grumpy, sullen, despondent, that is probably a failure to love those around you. And again, if you doubt that, ask somebody who's lived with a continually grumpy person. It makes life positively miserable. And then the final point we talked about last week is the way in which you will never learn how to rejoice always until you're confident you're at peace with God through Jesus' death and resurrection. This is really, in one way, common sense. If I'm going around in constant fear, thinking that God is angry with me, thinking that any day I might plummet into hell, there's no way I can rejoice always. But when I'm certain that I am forgiven and loved in Jesus, when I am certain that my home in heaven is secure, then I can know that joy of the Lord which is my strength. Then I can experience that peace which passes understanding. Those were the four points we covered last week, and I'd encourage you, if you weren't here, to listen to that sermon. You can either download it, watch it on the sermon audio page, for finding your joy in Jesus is not a laughing matter. Well, we concluded last week with this question. All of this sounds good, but how? How can I rejoice always? Uh, Or how can I increase the joy that I'm already experiencing somewhat? If this is so important, if this really is an act of love, how can I rejoice always? By God's grace, that's what we hope to answer today. And in the time that we have, I want to give you four biblical principles for rejoicing always. Four biblical principles for rejoicing always. And I want to say up front, in a way I had a very difficult time putting the sermon together because I have to confess I do not follow all of these principles myself all the time. I want to, I believe I should, but you know, I'm a sinner just like you are, and I I am weak just like you are, and I don't always put these principles into practice. But as somebody charged with preaching God's word, this is what the word of God says on this topic, and I'm obligated to tell you what God's word says. Uh, So pray for me as I pray for you that God would help us all to put these principles into practice. But four biblical principles for rejoicing always. Principle number one, rejoicing always is fueled by focusing on the gifts God has given you and not on those things you want but cannot have. Rejoicing always is fueled by focusing on the gifts God has given you and not on those things you want but cannot have. Now imagine something with me. Imagine this great big jigsaw puzzle maybe a thousand pieces, and imagine it's nearly complete, but there are a couple pieces missing. You know, maybe it's a corner piece, maybe it's a piece around the edge, maybe it's a piece right there in the middle. You got this beautiful jigsaw puzzle that's almost finished, but a couple pieces are missing. Now, in a situation like that, where's your attention going to be drawn? Is it going to be drawn to the pieces that are there or to the pieces that are missing? We notice, don't we, the pieces that are missing. It doesn't matter how beautiful the scene is. You know, it could be this beautiful pastoral landscape from Ireland. But if it's missing one piece, that's where your attention is drawn. And you're thinking, man, this puzzle, it's missing a piece. What we need to realize is that that's how our sinful hearts react to all of life. We have sinful, selfish hearts. And because of that, our attention is always drawn to the things that we want but can't have, not to the things that God has given us. It doesn't matter if we've got 999 good things to be grateful for. We might have a decent job and wonderful health and decent kids and and a decent house to live in. But if there's just this, this one piece that we really, really want but can't have, that's where our attention is drawn. And we can become so grumpy, so despondent because we don't have that one thing we want. Am I right? So often this comes from comparing ourselves with other people, to be honest. We look at other people, other men, other women, other families, other churches, and we think, hey, they've got this or that. Why can't I have this or that? That guy's job is better than mine. That woman's house is better than mine. That kid's, uh, those kids over there, they're they're more well-behaved than mine are. 
Why can't I have that? Instead of focusing on the things God has given us in his grace, we compare ourselves to others and wind up grumpy because we don't have what we want. Realize the Bible encourages us to reject that entire way of thinking wholesale. You see, in the Bible, we begin with the assumption that we are all sinners, and because of that, we really don't deserve anything good. We are all sinners, not worthy of the least of God's blessings. We are not worthy to be called his sons. Moreover, the Bible begins with the assumption that God is generous and gracious and has given us thousands of gifts every single day, most of which we take for granted. And the Bible begins with the assumption that whatever you have, whoever you are, you are that, you have that by the sovereign dispensation of God. A God who is wise and good and who has given us gifts as he pleases. Therefore, my proper perspective ought not to be to focus on those things that I want but can't have, but to give thanks for all the good, gracious gifts that God has given me that I don't deserve. Now, this perspective is everywhere in the Bible. Listen to Matthew 7, 9. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. We read this as our call to worship again, but think about Psalm 16, 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. For a lot of us, the lines have fallen on pleasant places, but we don't see that because we're not really paying attention. And instead, we're comparing ourselves with others and seeing what they have that we don't have in our discontent. If you grew up in church, you probably remember that old hymn, Count Your Many Blessings. Remember that? I won't try and sing it for you now, but count your many blessings, name them one by one, count your many blessings, see what God has done. I realize the tune is a little quaint, probably could stand some updating, but there's so much biblical wisdom in that song. Key to rejoicing always is intentionally focusing your mind on the gracious gifts God has given you that you don't deserve. That will move our hearts to delight and to praise. So often as humans, and especially as Americans, we get this all wrong. We get the order reversed. We think, I'll wait until I'm grateful to count God's blessings. Instead, you ought to count God's blessings, and that will move you to gratitude. Right now, I want us to do a little experiment. Ready? Look around this room, and and don't say anything out loud, but look around this room and ask yourself, what do I like about this room? What is proper here? What is something I enjoy in this room? Uh, Really, just look around and think about this for a few moments. What do I really like in here, appreciate in here? Are there people that I like in here, appreciate in here? I hope so. Take a few minutes and do that. Maybe not minutes, a few seconds and do that. Now, you do that for a little bit, and it won't be long before your heart begins to warm. And you can sense this gratitude welling up in your heart. Do you feel that? Now, let's try something else. Let's do the exact opposite. Look around this room and ask yourself, uh, what is wrong with this room? What don't I like in this room? If I were setting up things, what would I change in here? Uh, what, what, what bothers me? What do I not like? Are there, you know, again, maybe you don't say anything out loud. Maybe, maybe people I don't like in this room. You do that for a few moments, and you'll discover that those warm feelings quickly dissipate. And if you let it go on long enough, pretty soon you'll get grumpy, discontent, miserable. Am I right? Now, here's what's interesting. Nothing objective changed between the first experiment and the second experiment. 
I mean, the room's exactly the same. You're still occupying the same space, still sitting in the same chair. People are still the same around you. Nothing objective has changed, but the way that you feel has changed entirely because your mindset has changed. What you're fixing your attention on has changed. If you choose to focus on the good, you feel good, but if you focus on the bad, you feel bad. You tracking with me? Here's what I want to convey to you this morning. You have far more control over your joy than you realize. I mentioned last week the way in which rejoicing always is a skill to be cultivated, and this really is what I'm getting at. You can essentially turn on your joy almost by command by focusing your attention on God's gracious gifts. Let me say that again. And again, you can learn to do this. You can grow in this. But you can turn on your joy almost by command by simply focusing your attention on God's gracious blessings. And if you'll learn to do that, you will become a blessing not only to yourself, but to everybody around you. I would literally encourage you to spend a little bit of time every single day reviewing the last 24 hours and thanking God for all his gracious gifts. Literally, make this part of your daily devotions. Uh, Did God keep you safe driving around town? Uh, Did God bless you with three meals? Did he give you shoes for your feet, shirt on your back, a warm house to live in? Most of all, thank God for the gracious gifts he's given us in Jesus. Forgiveness of sins, adoption as sons and daughters, the indwelling Holy Spirit, every spiritual blessing, the sure and certain hope of heaven. Fix your eyes on those blessings, and that is key to rejoicing always. I know I've shared shared with you this story before, but in my life, this was instrumental in changing my entire demeanor. You go back to 25, 30 years ago, I was a very despondent, introspective, kind of self-absorbed teenager. I went to Bible college, and that's a story in itself that I could tell you about, but a friend there said, you know what you should do? Every single day, write down 10 things from that day to thank God for. You know, just right before you go to bed, get out a piece of paper, write out 10 things from that day to thank God for. I trusted this friend, so I took his advice, and every day I'd write out 10 things, and like I've said before, most of these were kind of quaint. You know, I really loved the pizza at lunch. Or I went at ping pong uh, after class. Or, or I talked to this pretty girl named Bethany. You know, pretty, kind of just ordinary things. And I stuck with that for about three or four years. And what I discovered is that the Lord used that to change my mindset entirely. It kind of trained me to fix my focus on these gracious blessings and not on things that I want but can't have. And what I discovered is that over time, I went from being despondent and insular and, and, and self-absorbed to actually experiencing joy an awful lot of the time. And it, was, it almost took me by surprise. I'd encourage you to do something like that. It just might totally transform your life. We actually try to do this on a regular basis during our prayer times, both before Sunday school and on Wednesday nights. Several years ago, I added this. We used to have you know, very uh, many requests, uh, you know, this request. And there's nothing wrong with asking for requests. Obviously, God wants us to bring our requests to him. But in addition to that, we want to thank God for his gifts. So every time, Sunday morning, Wednesday night, we have two columns, prayer requests and praises. And we ask together, has God taught you anything? Has God provided in a unique way? Has God answered your prayers? We collectively come together to give God praise because that will move us as a congregation to joy. Realize, brothers and sisters, if you intentionally count your blessings before long, you will be saying with King David, Psalm 16, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Focus on the gifts God has given you and not on those things you want and cannot have. And I'd be willing to bet that three months from now, six months from now, nine months from now, you will notice yourself a more joyful person than you are today. Quickly, here's a second principle for rejoicing always. 
Understand that rejoicing always is enabled by believing the eternal perspective in the here and now. Understand that rejoicing always is enabled by believing the eternal perspective here and now. Now, you've probably heard that saying before, he's so earthly minded, or pardon me, so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. You ever heard that before? Raise your hand if you've heard that phrase. Everybody. He's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. Interestingly, the most often I hear that phrase is when people justify their lack of church attendance. And I've come to believe that that saying is actually just one more lie that the devil uses to cut people off from joy and to hinder them from loving their neighbors. Realize that according to Scripture, you cannot be so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly good. If someone really believes what the Bible teaches about heaven, hell, eternity, the gospel, Jesus, the resurrection, they will be a profoundly joyful person, a profoundly holy person, a profoundly useful person in society. They'll believe that they can sacrifice their life and their temporal possessions to serve others because they have a greater reward in heaven. They'll believe that since God sees what, everything that I do and hears everything that I do, I need to be an honest employee even when my boss isn't around. They'll be more loving spouses, more caring parents, more obedient children because they believe what the Bible says about the life to come. This perspective comes out everywhere in Scripture. Mark 8.36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. One more, 2 Corinthians 4.16, and think through the two perspectives here. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are unseen, but to the things that are, pardon me, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I could keep going, but that perspective is everywhere in the Bible. Key to loving others, key to loving God, key to experiencing joy here and now is believing what the Bible says about eternity. Again, if you believe that there is the Father's house where I'm going to in a relatively brief period of time because of Jesus' sacrifice, I can give my life away now in service to my neighbor because, again, I have treasures awaiting me in heaven. If I believe, again, what the Bible says about eternity, I don't need to exhaust myself collecting stuff, collecting cars and clothes and seashells. Instead, I can give my life away because I'm storing up treasure in heaven. Everything comes back to this eternal perspective. In light of this, I ask you, my brothers and sisters, do you really believe what the Bible has to say about eternity? Do you really believe what the Bible has to say about eternity? Do you really believe that there is an eternal hell of unspeakable torment? that there is an eternal heaven of indescribable joy, and that in a relatively brief period of time, all of us will be in one of those two places. Do you really believe what the Bible has to say about eternity? What I'm saying here is essential not only to rejoicing always, but also to, have a jo- also to having a joyful marriage. This perspective will transform your marriage. I remember some counsel a pastor mentioned many, many years ago. This is something he said to every couple he did premarital counseling with. But he said to them, never forget that with marriage, it's the first 75 years that are the hardest. Now think through what he meant by that. Never forget that the first 75 years of marriage are the hardest. 
Obviously, the idea is that marriage is tough, but if I believe that the sufferings of this present age aren't worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, that will give me the fuel to persevere in a difficult marriage. And not only in a difficult marriage, but in all the difficulties of life. Brothers and sisters, do everything you can to increasingly cultivate this eternal perspective. This, incidentally, is why all of us need to be reading the Bible daily. You know, if you need reason 784, why you should read the Bible daily, here's another reason. To cultivate this eternal perspective. I mean, you're not going to get this from TV and the internet. You're not going to get this from TikTok. It's only the Word of God that's going to tell you that, how did C.T. Studd put it? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Read the Bible daily. Otherwise, you'll quickly forget this and start feeling and thinking just like the world. Walk by faith and not by sight, brothers and sisters, and understand that rejoicing always is enabled by believing this eternal perspective in the here and now. Quickly, a third principle. And this one's going to require you to remember your high school math. But understand that your joy is equal to what you experience in life over what you believe you deserve in life. I'll explain what I mean in a moment. Your joy is equal to what you experience in life over what you believe you deserve in life. Now, remember basic fractions? I was awful at math. Like, I haven't taken math since 11th grade, which is many moons ago. But I do remember how fractions work. With basic fractions, when the number on the top is bigger than the number on the bottom, you get a whole number. But if the number on the top is smaller than the number on the bottom, you get a fraction of a number. So, for example, if I've got four halves, what is that? Two. But if I've got one half, that's actually 0.5. Okay, stick with me. This is going to make sense in a minute. You you following me so far? Here's how all of this applies to rejoicing always. Let me share with you something I call the joy equation. Your experience of joy really does boil down to this. Is what you experience in life greater than what you think you deserve in life? Or is what you think you deserve greater than what you experience in life? Now, for most of us, we think we deserve an awful lot. Again, this is one of the ways sin has deformed us. Sin's messed us up big time. But we think we deserve to be healthy, wealthy, and comfortable. We think we deserve to be loved and pampered and coddled. We, we think we deserve to have plenty of clothes and uh, a job where we work for minimal, you know, minimal stress and, and great pay. We, we think we deserve all of this. We frankly think we're entitled, part of what sin has done to us. But then when we take a look at reality, we're disappointed because we're not receiving everything that we think we deserve. We might not be in perfect health. We might not be as wealthy as we would like. We might not have the spouse who does everything for us like we will like. Our clothes wear out. Our cars break down. Our house starts to fall apart. And we're not getting what we think we deserve. And what happens, we become profoundly discontent and unhappy. I think this is probably the number one reason why people are not rejoicing always. What we think we deserve comes nowhere close to what we experience in life. Now again, for those who believe the Bible, our perspective ought to be entirely different. For if we believe the Bible, what is it that we all deserve? Is it a nice house and a beautiful car and a loving spouse? And No, we, we deserve God's wrath. We deserve death. We deserve hell. This is actually what distinguishes true Christians from pretend Christians. We believe that we fully, righteously observe nothing but the wrath of God. And any breath we breathe, any eyesight that we have, any clear breeze that cools our skin, all of that is a gift we don't deserve. 
True Christians believe, Romans 3.10, about themselves, not just in an academic way, like you can check the right box on the doctrine exam, but we believe this about ourselves, that there is no one righteous, no one at one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Do you believe that about yourself? Again, true Christians believe Ephesians 2.1 about themselves, not about folks out there, but about me. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying around the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Deep down, again, I think this is the primary reason why more people aren't rejoicing always. Deep down, we think we deserve a lot better than we're getting. But again, if we believe the Bible, all of that changes. If we have anything, that is a reason to rejoice. If you're breathing right now, that's a reason to rejoice. For years, our brother Bud, whenever anybody asks him how he's doing, what's he say? Better than I deserve. Realize that is a profoundly Christian way to answer that question. And that's true not only for Bud, but for all of us. How are you doing? Always better than you deserve. On your worst day, you're still doing profoundly better than you deserve. And if you get that, that will free you to rejoice always. Now, think back to my equation here. Again, remember your math. The bigger the number on the top, the bigger the whole number. So if you got four halves, that's two. Eight halves is what? Four. Sixteen halves is what? Eight. Again, I'm trying to illustrate something here. The greater your awareness of your sin, the greater your joy becomes because the more you see that I don't deserve absolutely anything. The deeper your understanding of your personal sinfulness, the freer to rejoice you will be. I know that sounds so counterintuitive and it's totally the opposite of what our world's going to tell you, but it is profoundly Christian. The deeper your understanding of your personal sinfulness... And this is why every Christian I've ever talked to who's walked with the Lord for decades, they feel way more sinful today than they did 30, 40 years ago. I think that's part of God's transforming grace that he's opening our eyes to see how desperately sinful we actually are. But that serves to exalt us into joy that God would love a wretch like me. Another way to illustrate this, so you're not into fractions, it's a seesaw. What happens with a seesaw? This side goes down, this side goes up. The deeper your understanding of your sin is, the higher you can rejoice because God has saved a wretch like me. So I'd encourage you, brothers and sisters, grow in your understanding of human sinfulness. Learn what the Bible teaches about how sinful we are, how depraved we are, how much we righteously deserve God's wrath. Study those passages that speak to this, say Romans 3, Ephesians 2. If you're looking for a book to help you study this topic, the book I'd encourage is called The Enemy Within, Straight Talk About the Power of Sin and Defeat of Sin by Chris Lundgaard. There's a copy in our church library, short little book. But never forget that your joy is equal to what you experience in life over what you believe you deserve in life. And again, if we are God's enemies and deserving of wrath, but God has shown us incalculable mercy, especially in Christ, we've got an awful lot of reasons to rejoice always. And again, I say all of this realizing that there is a sad streak of hypocrisy in my own life because I don't rejoice always as I should. But I do think that what I'm telling you here is true. So again, let's pray for one another that we put these principles into practice. One final point for today. Believe that our highest joy and God's glory are one and the same. 
I think this is vital for rejoicing always. Believe that our highest joy and God's glory are one and the same. Now, I want to be extraordinarily careful here. I am not saying that God wants us to do whatever we feel like doing or however we perceive happiness or do whatever you think feels good. That's not at all what I'm saying under this point. I can think of the man who used to attend this church many years ago who said, I think God wants me to divorce my wife because I think that will make me happy. And of course, God wants us to be happy, doesn't he? You might want to think through that logic there for yourself, lest you too be led astray by that deceptive lie. Realize we're not talking about that at all. Due to our sinful perceptions and due to the way that sin has bent our hearts, we can think something will make us happy when in reality it's just leading us into deeper, darker sin. We can be so easily led astray by what we think will make us happy. So we've got to be guided here by the principles of God's word. We're not talking about joy however you perceive it or what you think will make you happy. All of that being said, there is nonetheless a vital principle here. And that's how in God's universe, God's glory and our highest good are one and the same. This is just the way that God has made the world. His glory, our highest good, his glory, our greatest joy are one and the same. So to the degree that you do things God's way according to his word, you're automatically giving yourself what is best for yourself. You're automatically walking in the way that will bring you, sooner or later, the highest joy. Again, this is everywhere in Scripture. Psalm 1.1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. John 13.17, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. One more, Galatians 6.8, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Again, this is everywhere in the Bible. Your highest good, your greatest joy, and God's glory are just flip sides of the same coin. The path to the flourishing life is in the path of God's commandments. Therefore, if you really want to be joyful, if you really want to increase your joy, strive to do everything that you can to live God's way. It's simply how God designed the universe. I know we talked about this catechism question last week, but I want to talk about it again briefly. But 400 years ago, the Westminster theologians put together this catechism, and it was really designed for teaching kids. But the very first question is this, what is the chief end of man? And by chief end, they mean like my purpose in life. Why am I here? And you'll notice they say man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, this is what I want you to notice. They ask a singular question. What is the singular chief end of man? But the answer has two parts. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, why is that? Why does a singular question have a dual answer? It's because they understood, like really all good Christians understand, that to glorify God and to enjoy God are really one and the same. They're two sides of the same coin. Again, by the grace of God, I can testify that this principle has proven powerfully true in my own life. Like I said, I was this sullen, melancholy student, shy, introverted, self-absorbed. But God took me to Bible college, and I don't think I can thank God for it. I mean, obviously, there are other things that I thank God for in addition to going to Bible college, but that changed my life like nothing else. I found myself in this Bible college where people really loved the Lord and wanted to do things God's way. And before long, that kind of, I kind of caught that sickness. I mean, it wasn't a sickness in a bad way, but I kind of picked up on that. And before long, I'm trying to do things God's way. Uh, in my studies, in the way that I interact with friends, in the way that I use my time, I'm trying to do things God's way. And what I discovered... So again, 
get that thing do feel train, and eventually those feelings catch up, and you find yourself, you know, my default attitude is joy. I didn't notice this. I didn't, I didn't even intentionally try to cultivate it. But, but my default attitude is joy. Praise God for that. But I think all that is is this principle in practice. When you try to do things God's way, don't be surprised if joy starts filling your life. Now, here's what I want you to do. Think through all the roles that you're called to play in life. I mean, all of us have a variety of roles we're called to play. For instance, I'm a son to my parents. I'm a wife to... Uh, I'm a husband. <laughs> I'm a husband to my wife, Bethany. Father to my kids. Pastor of this church. Citizen of Muncie. Citizen of the United States. Chaplain in the Navy Reserve. Uh, I live in a particular neighborhood uh, over here near Walmart. You know, we've all got these different roles. I want you to do that for yourself. Think through the different roles God has called you to play. And here's the point I want to stress. To the degree that you live God's way in all of those roles, to that degree you'll experience joy. Really think through this. To the degree that you do things God's way in all of those different roles, as husband or wife, child or parent, uh, son or daughter, as citizen, as whatever, to the degree that you do things God's way, you're automatically pursuing the path to greatest joy. Realize what we're saying here is true not only for you individually, but also for your entire family. To the degree that your family is ordered according to Scripture, with, say, husbands providing loving spiritual leadership, wives functioning as supportive helpmeets, children honoring and obeying their parents, everybody striving to solve problems biblically, to that degree your family will be a joyful family. This will be true for our congregation, to the degree that our church is ordered according to Scripture with godly men serving as pastors, elders, and deacons, the faithful teaching and preaching of God's word, an emphasis on outreach and evangelism, healthy community and body life, faithful practice of church discipline and the ordinances, to the degree that our church is ordered according to Scripture, to that degree we'll be a joyful church. And honestly, I've got to say the same thing for our nation. To the degree that our nation is ordered according to biblical principles, we'll be a joyful nation. And this is true not only for America, but for all nations where citizens treat one another with dignity and respect, where we strive to work together regardless of our skin color, religion, or political views, where the laws of the land reflect the unchangeable laws of God's moral law, where our leaders seek God's wisdom. In a nation like that, there will be a joyful people. But where God's ways are abandoned, realize the way to joy is abandoned. And if you're following the news, you know that that's exactly what's happening in our land right now. Brothers and sisters, this is simply how God has designed designed the universe. You can no more deny this than deny the law of gravity. But realize that at the end of the day, your highest joy and God's glory are one and the same. Now, in conclusion, I want to say two quick things. First, realize we have simply scratched the surface of an enormous topic. I mentioned, I think, last week that we could easily do a 10-week series on this topic, and probably we'd do a lot longer than that. Because of that, let me recommend you a book. If you'd like to learn more about joy and rejoicing always, the book I'd recommend is called Happiness by Randy Alcorn. I realize happiness can be defined different ways, but he defines it basically like we have defined joy. Randy Alcorn, if you know anything about him, he's become this sort of specialist at writing these gigantic books that somehow become bestsellers. This book, as you can see, is about as big as his heaven book, um, but incredibly practical and biblical. Definitely worth checking out. If you'd like to learn more about rejoicing always, get heaven, or pardon me, happiness by Randy Elkhorn. The last thing I'll say this morning is the same thing I said last week, and 
really what I come back to in pretty much every sermon I preach around here. But once again, realize that at the end of the day, you will never know true, lasting joy. You will never be able to rejoice always until you're confident you're at peace with God through Jesus' death and resurrection. I remind you again of what Jesus said in Matthew 8.36, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? If you had everything you ever wanted or needed in this life, but then for you to die and to go to hell, what's what's the profit in that? If you enjoyed every mental, bodily pleasure conceivable, and then to die and to go to eternal hell, what benefit is that? It's a wasted life. It's only when you're right with God through faith in Jesus that you can truly enjoy life in this life and life in the life to come. The Bible teaches us that God is the loving creator of the world. Absolutely everything, this entire beautiful universe, and he made it for us to enjoy for the glory of God. He created you in his image to have a relationship with him. You were made to know God and his son Jesus. And yet the reality of it is we have all sinned. We've all rebelled against God. We've basically tried to live the way we wanted to live without regard to how God designed it to be lived. We try to live as if there is no God, when in reality he is a loving Heavenly Father. And because he is a righteous God, he will punish us for our sins. He will pour out his wrath, both, on, both in this life and in the life to come. And unless we are forgiven, unless we are saved, unless we are reconciled to our Creator, we will suffer the punishment of our sins forever in that real place called hell. And yet under those very circumstances, God still loved us. God loved rebellious people, and he did something to heal and to restore the relationship we destroyed. God provided a Savior, a Savior for all of us. God the Father sent God the Son to earth. God the Son took on flesh and blood, born as a baby, given the name Jesus. Fully God, fully man in one person. He grew up and lived a life of perfect trust in and obedience to God the Heavenly Father. Like I said last week, he's the only human who's ever lived who's actually rejoiced always. But if you know the rest of the story, Jesus died a horrible death. When he's just in his 30s, he's arrested, he's nailed to the cross, and it's on the cross that he bears the wrath of God in the place of sinners. This is how God could remain a holy God while forgiving rebels. By pouring out his judgment on Jesus on the cross in our place, he can then turn to those of us who believe and say, you're forgiven, we're reconciled. Three days later, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead to demonstrate that what I'm telling you is true. Jesus ascended to heaven where he is now, and one day he's going to return to judge. And now, in response, Jesus is calling you. Jesus is inviting you. Jesus is commanding you. Repent or turn from your sin. Stop living your own way. Stop marching to your own drum. Trust in my son and be forgiven. Be reconciled to God. Again, you will never know true, lasting joy until you're confident that you're at peace with God through Jesus. But this is exactly why Jesus has come. This is exactly why he lived, why he died, why he rose again, so that sinners like you and me could be forgiven, and not only forgiven, but become the joyful children of God. So in conclusion, I beg you to trust Jesus now. Trust him right now, right as you're sitting there looking at me, as I'm looking at you. Turn from your rebellion. Put your hope in the Lord Jesus. Embrace his loving leadership. Stake your entire hopes for this life and the life to come on what he has done. Be reconciled to God. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, need clarification on something that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you, pray for you, please talk to me after the service. I'll be under the overhang to greet people on the way out.
But come to Jesus today. Be forgiven today and become a joyful child of God today. Let's close in prayer. Our God in heaven, you know that I do feel my own hypocrisy. It's not intentional. But Lord, I know that I don't put your word into practice like I should. Lord, forgive me of the ways whereby I've violated these very principles, even this last week. Lord, we do thank you for the joy that's available in you, for the joy that Jesus died to give us. Please work in all of us, Lord, for those who don't yet know you. Work in their hearts that today they might be born again. For those of us who do know you, increase our understanding of your grace. Increase our understanding of all the gifts that you have given to us. Help us to count our many blessings. And as that takes place, fill us with joy. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen.